0: Listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that we love from the twenty third chapter of Luke's gospel. When they got to the place called Skull Hill, they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus prayed, Father forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Dividing up his clothes they threw dice for them. The people stood there watching, and But the leaders scoffed at him, taunting. He was supposed to rescue others? He was supposed to be God's anointed, the liberating king? Let's see him start by liberating himself. The soldiers joined in the mockery. First they pretended to offer him a soothing drink, but it was sour wine. So you're the king of the Jews. Why don't you save yourself? Even the inscription they placed over him was intended to mock him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanged there, kept deriding him, and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked him, saying, Don't you have any fear of God at all? You're getting the same death sentence he is. We're getting what we deserve since we've committed crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong at all. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may wonder, as I did, why in late November, right before Advent, are we wrestling with the scripture that deals with the crucifixion? Shouldn't we get to this in March or April? This story just seems out of place at this time of year. Why are we looking at this story at this time? When I asked the other pastors that question, I was reminded that today, the last Sunday before Advent, is the Feast of Christ the King. Today is actually the last Sunday of the Christian liturgical year. Next week, we will begin a new Christian year with the first Sunday of Advent. But today, we are invited to remember and wrestle with the reality that Christ is King, Sovereign of the Universe, Ruler of Heaven and Earth. My first reaction to being reminded of the Feast of Christ the King was, Oh right, of course, I get it, now I see why we're talking about these verses. But when my embarrassment of not knowing the Christian liturgical calendar wore off, and I actually thought about it, I was still confused. If we're supposed to be talking about Christ the King, the ruler of heaven and earth, why these verses? These are not verses I typically think of when considering the ruling power of Christ. These are tough verses where Jesus is mocked, ridiculed, blasphemed, and tortured. Shouldn't we have picked verses that showed Jesus being honored, praised, and glorified as king? Why didn't we pick some verses where Jesus is winning? Past that, I have to confess that this scene doesn't sit well with me. And not the torture part, I get that. That shouldn't sit well with any of us. What bothers me about this scene is how I've been taught about these verses. Maybe you've been taught the same thing, that the moral of this story is to be like the good criminal and not the bad criminal. We typically boil this story down to being a cautionary tale against missing out on heaven. The idea is that we have a choice to make. If we will choose to believe in Jesus like the good criminal, we will go to heaven. And if we don't, if we act like the bad criminal, we will go to hell. This scene is often cast as one of those line-in-the-sand moments when we will all be asked to choose, and I have to confess, I don't buy it. That interpretation doesn't sit well with me, and it never has. Why should the bad criminal believe? Did he know Jesus before he was nailed to a cross right beside him? The story doesn't say anything about that. For all we know, this man's introduction to Jesus may very well have been being hoisted up on the cross next to him and witnessing everyone ridiculing. What has Jesus done to deserve his belief? Maybe he hadn't witnessed any miracles. Maybe his request is no different than Thomas' request following the resurrection. If you're the Messiah, prove it. Save yourself. Save me. I can understand that kind of thinking. I can also admit that part of the reason I don't like the be a good criminal interpretation of this story is because I don't think I would have been like the good criminal. I think I would have probably behaved much more like the bad criminal if I would had experienced these circumstances. But there's something more going on inside of me that pushes back against that understanding. It just seems too easy to me. It's on the surface. There's no depth to it. Surely, if the whole point of Jesus' death was to encourage us to be good criminals and believe There could have been an easier way to communicate that. Did Jesus really have to experience all the torture and violence and ridicule described here simply so we could wag a finger at ourselves and each other and say, don't be like a bad criminal or you'll miss out on heaven. If there's anything I've learned from studying the Gospel of Luke, it's that Luke did not care for surface interpretation. Luke's Gospel never settles for conventional or easy understanding. The Jesus that Luke knew repeatedly met people where they were and said, there's more. The Jesus that Luke would have us know is a Jesus that blows up accepted definitions and categories. The reason I love Luke's gospel is because it's the good news of shattered expectations. And I can relate to that. In fact, I kind of like having my mind blown, having my definitions disrupted. One of my earliest memories of having my accepted ideas and categories blown up goes back to 1979, sitting in a movie theater on the edge of my seat watching Luke Skywalker battle Darth Vader in The Empire Strikes Back. I had seen Star Wars years before and been introduced to Darth Vader. I knew he was the bad guy. He was pure evil. He was the one who had killed Luke Skywalker's father, and as they fought, I was cheering for Luke Skywalker, wanting him to defeat Darth Vader, and win and then the bombshell we all know this and if we don't spoiler alert Luke is losing the battle Darth Vader has him at his mercy and can easily kill him but instead he reaches out to Luke and asks him to join forces with him and says those immortal words Luke I am your father what Darth Vader is Luke's father That just blew my six-year-old mind. What am I supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to make sense of the whole good versus evil thing now? The categories with which I had entered the theater that night to watch the second Star Wars movie were no longer helpful. They wouldn't work anymore. I knew too much. I had received new insight, a new revelation. I needed new categories. It occurs to me that Luke tells his stories of Jesus for the very same reason, because Jesus destroys unhelpful categories. He redefines our reality. Jesus confronts our accepted definitions and challenges us not to settle for the surface, but to reach for more. In these ten short verses from Luke 23, I recognize at least three categories that are under fire, at least three assumptions or definitions that Jesus disrupts. The first disrupted definition is Messiah. Luke asks his audience, which includes us, how do you define Messiah? Luke's original audience had an answer to this question, and their answer was based on scripture. The Messiah, or Mashiach in Hebrew, was the anointed one. Books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, and Ezekiel had been understood for hundreds of years to detail what the Messiah would do. The Messiah would bring about the redemption of the Jewish people by gathering the scattered remnant into a fully restored Israel. The Messiah would establish a government in Israel that would be the center of the entire world, both Jewish and Gentile. The Messiah would consecrate the temple and bring honor to its worship. The Messiah would restore Israel's courts and secure Jewish law as the law of the land. The Messiah would usher in an age of perfect shalom, where where there would be no murder, robbery, competition, or jealousy. To the people in this scene, none of that had happened. Rome was still in control. Rome's government was the center of the world. Rome's courts represented the law of the land. Caesar was Lord. Jesus, in contrast, was nailed to a Roman cross hanging between two criminals perfect shalom had not come. Not only was there still robbery, competition, and jealousy, but Jesus himself was being murdered. One of the Jewish resources I referenced in studying the expectations of the Mashiach said this, Jesus simply did not fulfill the mission of the Mashiach as it is described in the biblical passages of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Zechariah, and Zephaniah. The criminal who ridiculed Jesus and challenged him to save himself, just like the religious leaders who mocked him, was pointing out the obvious. You sure don't fit any definition of Messiah that I know. The Messiah I expect would never let Rome win and would surely never be tortured and crucified next to a criminal like me. Before I go judging these folks for missing it, I have to remember that their expectations for the Messiah... Their categories for what the Messiah should look like and how the Messiah should act came from their understanding of Scripture, from their religion, from their tradition. As far as they were concerned, their categories and definitions for Messiah came from God. The second disrupted definition I recognize in this passage is much more subtle, but it's there. Luke is the only gospel that has Jesus say anything to the bandits crucified alongside him. Luke is the only gospel that has one of those criminals ask to be remembered. In fact, in Matthew and Mark, the two two criminals both mock Jesus. Luke is the only gospel that has Jesus talk about paradise at all. The word paradise only occurs one time in all four gospels, and it's here In this unique exchange between Jesus and the good criminal. Luke is also asking his audience, how do you define paradise? Now this is an easy one for us, right? Paradise equals heaven, that glorious golf course in the sky where we will all be whisked away to when we die. We Western thinkers read a word like paradise in our Bible and we just know that Jesus is talking about heaven. In Jewish literature from centuries before Jesus, Paradise is used in reference to the blissful place of the righteous dead, an enclosed park, Abraham's bosom. The 70 Jewish scholars that translated the Torah into Greek, known as the Septuagint, used the same paradise word found here in Luke to describe the Garden of Eden in Genesis. N.T. Wright says that paradise, in Jewish thought, wasn't necessarily the final resting place, but the place of rest and refreshment before the gift of new life. So where is Jesus taking this criminal? To heaven? To the Garden of Eden? To a place of rest and refreshment? And for that matter, where are any of those places? As this story continues, Jesus goes into a tomb for three days, and then resurrects and appears on the road to Emmaus and to his disciples in Jerusalem. Did the criminal go with him to those places? Is heaven or paradise somewhere else? Throughout the Gospels, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, he refers to it as approaching, being at hand, coming, and is in fact now here. All of those word choices seem to indicate that heaven or paradise is something that we are invited to access here and now in our increasing awakening and in revelation. Jesus simply does not speak of heaven as being in a galaxy far, far away, some place to which we hyperspace upon death. Jesus also seems to stick the landing on the word today when he makes his promise to the criminal. He doesn't say, When this torture is over, or when we die, or in a few hours. He says, Today you will be with me in paradise. In her new book, Original Blessing, author and pastor Danielle Schroyer says, For the early church, paradise was described not as a separate heaven or a world to come, but as this world imbued with God's Spirit. Life in the risen Christ is paradise. It is abundant life in the here and now. The final definition disruption I can recognize in these verses of Luke's, to me, is the most obvious one. How do we define kingship? That is, how do we recognize the true sovereign of all creation? What does divine authority look like? How does God rule heaven and earth? In the opening verses of chapter 23, Luke makes sure that his audience will ask this question by having Jesus pass before two other rulers, Pontius Pilate and Herod. Pilate was a Roman prefect, a ruling emissary of Emperor Tiberius, the king of the global military superpower that had conquered the world by force. But to put it bluntly, Pilate couldn't even lead his people. He finds no reason for Jesus to be charged with any crime, so he argues with the crowd that is asking for Jesus to be crucified. Now these people are supposed to be his subjects. They're supposed to do what he says, and yet in the end... They control Pilate. Against his own will and judgment, he agrees to their demands to have Jesus crucified. In the middle of that process, while Pilate is trying to avoid charging Jesus, he sends him to Herod, the Jewish ruler. Herod and his soldiers ridicule Jesus and dress him up in royal robes to mock his divine authority. Herod questions Jesus, but Jesus does not answer. Herod's authority is just as flimsy as Pilate's. He can do nothing with Jesus. Without a response from Jesus, he can't even decide what to do with him, so he sends him back to Pilate. Pilate and Herod represented the government to all the people witnessing the crucifixion of Jesus. They were the authority and power over the region. It is not a coincidence that Jesus goes before both of these rulers. This is a blaring and bold comparison that demands an answer to the question, How do we define kingship? What should authority really look like? Throughout his ministry and now in the crescendo of the cross, Jesus models authority that stands in direct opposition to the understanding people had then, and if we're honest with ourselves, still stands in opposition to the understanding we have now. This king suffers with his people. This authority gets underneath its subjects and raises them up. This ruler prays mercy and forgiveness over those who would kill him. This royalty is beaten, flogged, mocked, and killed alongside criminals. The world had no categories for that. This king did not fit into any accepted definition at the time. For an authority to behave this way was an affront to their expectations. Messiah, paradise, kingship. These are words that we as Christians claim to be able to define for the entire world. We've built churches on our categories. We've led crusades with our understandings. We've started wars around our definitions. Are we really that different from our ancient predecessors? Do I accept a Messiah that doesn't win in the ways I expect a Messiah to win? Do I ask for and expect access to paradise right here and right now? Do I recognize authority that suffers and serves? Even now, right here, today, Luke's account pushes on my definitions. This gospel is still challenging my understanding of God. The Messiah that Luke knew did not overthrow any governments. He did not make Jerusalem the center of the world. He did not meet the expectations held by those he came to rescue. The paradise of which Jesus speaks is a present reality, something that is accessed today. It's also a reality that is not blocked by pain, suffering, or death. The kingship of Jesus did not show up in control, manipulation, or dominance. Rather, it manifested itself in service, sacrifice, and surrender. In the end, I can't say that I necessarily have better categories than my ancient predecessors. I don't know that my definitions are any more complete than theirs. I hope that I can be still long enough to wrestle with what Luke has done here. I hope I can avoid the temptation To settle for surface judgments and finger wagging. It's not as simple as making the soldiers, the crowd, and the mocking criminal the bad guys, the ones that missed it. Luke invites me to explore what I am missing in the edges of my own definitions. It's not as easy as those that believe get access to paradise and those that don't are doomed. Luke asks me where and when are the boundaries of heaven. It's not that true kingship always arrives as a crushing conqueror, Luke shows me a suffering servant that bears all things in love. You know, when I was six years old, if someone had told me that Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's dad before I walked into the theater to watch The Empire Strikes Back, I'm not sure what I would have done with that information. I'm not sure how I would have processed it outside of the context of the story. And if I had been in the crowd or on a cross next to Jesus at his crucifixion, I'm not sure how I would have processed that either. So how did the one criminal, the one that asked Jesus to remember him in his kingdom, get it when everyone else missed it? How did he know that Jesus was a different kind of Messiah? How did he know that paradise was closer than he thought? How did he know that the crucified rabbi next to him was the sovereign of all creation? Maybe he didn't. Maybe he just decided that he didn't know. I hope someday I can come to the same conclusion.